Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode 18. Happy New Year. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. And we are in the year of 2022. And on this episode, I'd like to pull things back a little bit from the from the trajectory I was on through the latter part of 2021. Uh, things got pretty dark there in the last couple of months of 2021. And I think all of the episodes from probably October through December reflect uh, where my head was at. <laughs> Every episode was about uh, um, movies about serial killers and documentaries depicting uh, fresh cadavers being uh, disemboweled and yeah, also got COVID in uh, in December, and I felt like shit pretty much all through the holidays. <laughs> so, um, but it is a new year. It is January, and um, I feel really good now. And I wanted to do an episode. I've been wanting to do this episode specifically for. Um, pretty much since I started the show. And I want to do an episode on uh, films that can be considered uh, feel-good movies. Like movies that are just, like you feel good when you're watching them. And after you watch them, it's you, movies that make you, you know, fill you with feelings of happiness and uh, warmth. And... Maybe there's some humor in there, some good-natured humor. Good, clean fun. I wanted to talk about some feel-good movies, and, you know, um, maybe I can make this a regular thing on the show. Because there's some movies that are, I don't know, some movies you just, you just kind of feel comfortable to you, and you just watch them, and it just... You enjoy watching them, and they leave you feeling all uh, all perky and happy inside. And uh, that's what this episode's going to be. And I'm going to try to pull back my natural sarcasm and disgust for humanity and cynicism. I'm going to try to pull that back. But I probably won't do a good job. I'm just going to say that now. But let's get started. The first, uh, the first movie I want to talk about today is a 2005 Japanese film entitled Linda, Linda, Linda. Directed by Nobuhiro Yamashita. And it takes place... Three days before a high school cultural festival, and a band of four high school senior girls uh, scramble through some lineup changes in 
this little band they cobbled together. They, like, their original guitarist broke her finger in, I think, PE class. So she couldn't play. But they had a keyboard player, and the keyboard player had to end up playing the guitar, but the keyboard player doesn't play guitar. So she had to kind of figure that out. And another member had sort of an argument, like a disagreement with uh, one of the other members and decided she didn't want to be in the band anymore. And and they didn't have a singer. It was a whole thing. So the whole movie is about these four girls getting this band together, figuring out what kind of songs they want to play and practice, practice, practice and make it to their make it to their show so after the band is formed and they uh so we have uh drummer bass player guitar player and lead singer um the movie follows their journey to their live performance at the finale of the movie and the Group's live set consists of three cover songs from Japanese punk band The Blue Hearts. Only two of the songs are really performed in the movie, but uh, one of the songs entitled Linda Linda is a song from the 1987 album uh, entitled The Blue Hearts by the band The Blue Hearts. And Linda 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 the movie doesn't have a cynical bone in its body. It's a teen drama, but without the drama and panders to no one. Uh, the most, it has the most subtle subtext. Um, like, well, the most subtle subtext of Linda, Linda, Linda is, is there's this, impending transition into adulthood. So all these girls are high school seniors. And you're reminded of their their youth and their adolescence. They're they're at a school where everyone's in uniform. So you're just you're constant and they're always carrying books and they're always at school. You know, their cultural festivals at school, their performances at school, they rehearse at school. So they're always at school. So, but you have this feeling of, oh, like all of this high school stuff. Like all this is going to go away soon. Like all these things that matter so much when you're a teenager, it just doesn't matter once you graduate. And they don't even mention high school graduations they don't mention what are you going to do after school they just like everything is so living in the now and so everything in the movie is so about the moment but they're but the, the idea that they're they're not they could have easily been 13 or 16 but the fact that they made them seniors um kind of puts that idea in your head of like where where they are as as women 
So, I mean, that, that's what I got from the movie. And, um, and I, I, I think, I think a lot of people can identify with that, especially if you yourself have been in a band as a teenager and have had that sort of creative outlet and you've played shows or maybe you even recorded an album. There's, there's, it's relatable in that way. And I mean, I'm so, I mean, even if you've done any kind of creative, anything, if you were, were in theater or, or whatever, something that sort of made you stand out, something that kind of made you special, even athletics, I think to a large extent, um, something that made you special as a teenager. It's like once you turn 18, like those things that made you special don't make you special anymore. Typically, unless you get signed to the NFL or something straight out of high school, but most people don't. Most people go get a job at Office Max or wherever, or they go to school and they go to college or whatever, and you just become a, an anonymous face in a crowd. And you're not as special as, as you once were, you know, the year before. And instead of the absurd realism and comedy or drama of something like, I'll use like extreme example, like um, this is Spinal Tap or Almost Famous or something horror genre related and violent like a, a green room. Those movies have their own kind of direction, whether if it's comedy or horror, but but the way you even kind of relate, like you you kind of understand the the things that the these band members go through because they're in a band. So there's sort of this group of creative people who have to kind of navigate through their particular medium and that can kind of lead somewhere funny that can lead somewhere um, in a more dramatic direction or horrific direction. But this movie sort of sidesteps all of that sort of like Hollywood writing that Hollywood drama where it's, it's more of a, it's a very light slice of life movie where you just you just see these girls in their natural state like there's no bad girls type of thing happening there's no um i don't know adults who you know, or, or overbearing parents that like, I don't like you playing music with your rowdy friends or there's, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's no like teachers that are like, I don't like you and your, and your shithead uh, band friends and you better watch yourselves. And, you know, if you don't, you, you'll all get expelled and won't graduate. There's none of that kind of crap in this movie. It's just, very it's almost like a documentary 
it's it's you know i mean when you watch it's clearly not a documentary but it just you just see these these young people in their natural state and and it's and it's very minimal like the story is incredibly minimal and you get a lot just by and a, and a lot gets expressed in very minimal dialogue just watching the characters go through their daily life you get so much story just from watching that than you would if somebody in the middle of the movie just plopped you down and just gave you a bunch of, bunch of exposition to explain what the hell's happening here's an example and there's there was in, in 2013 there was a short film uh, titled black metal and it's a very short film and um, it's you can find it on YouTube it's pretty easy to find but it expressed more in a nine minute short film than the entire run times of uh, Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody combined. It, it it's in in nine minutes. This this whole short film. It's basically this the singer of this black metal band. He uh um during uh during uh you know during this one day when his band is playing a show and after the show there uh he's run into the uh the store and he's waiting in line and he's you know still has like he's he's got his band shirt on and he still has some of his fucking stage makeup on and stage blood on him and stuff and he's just he's just all sweaty he's just standing in line buying some shit and and um, this guy in line is like some random guy is just like, "Hey, man, that your shirt is—is is that your band?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he's like, uh, "Yeah." On the news, some kid like killed his family and like drew your band's logo on the wall in his family's blood you know like he basically he was giving the guy a hard time he was just like 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 fuck you don't you feel responsible that your fucking stupid fucking black metal band caused some kid to fucking kill you know some people basically <laughs> the uh the singer guy got provoked enough and he fucking punched the guy out in the fucking store and uh, it cuts to him back at home and his wife is like cleaning up his fucking fighting wounds. And, you know, he's just like, he's like, I don't, I don't like, I don't understand why somebody would kill her family like that. Like, you know, like you could tell he's doesn't feel responsible, but the sort of the heat that him and his band are going to get after all of this, all the stuff in the media about this, like, sacrificial um, murder that his band has now been, like, kind of implicated, you know, sort of 
sort of in. And, you know, he's home and he's like sitting up and his uh, daughter comes in the living room and is like, dad, I can't sleep. And he's like, oh, come here, sweetie. And, you know, he's, he's got a daughter and he's really sweet with her. And, um, she's like, yeah, dad, what happened to your face? And he's like, well, dad got into a fight. She's, you know, like, why'd you get into a fight? And he's like, some man said something really terrible and him and I got into a fight and, you know, little girl's like, 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 what do you say? And he says, well, um, he says something to the effect of like, oh, he said that, you know, I, you know, somebody, somebody, someone did something terrible to some people and he thinks that I had something to do with it. And the daughter's like, well, did you? And the dad's just kind of like, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't answer her. He's just basically like, let's go to bed, okay? It's past your bedtime. Let's go to bed. And then, like, and then, you know, it, it sort of ends right there. Kind of, like, leaves that hanging out in the air. And that and that's, you know, and that's a nine-minute short film. And that gives you more story than some of these, like, than all, well, Nowadays, more than most movies, you know, they, but, um, I feel like Linda, Linda, Linda is, is kind of like that where, but it's a full length film, but they sort of give you information very slowly as opposed to giving you like very, very important pieces of information in a short period of time. Linda, Linda, Linda gives you all the important bits of information over a more extended period of time. So you actually have time to digest everything that you see and you have time to tie all the characters together and all the sort of like, um, subplot things that are going on because the, I mean, the main story is the girls are getting the group together, learning the blue heart songs. And they have a, they have a very short period of time to get all this done. They have three days. So they're basically practicing, every waking moment that they have. And, but the sort of like subplots are like some of the girls have, um, <laughs> like one girl has like a crush, um, with all the singer girl who's a Korean exchange student. And that's like a whole thing is she has to like her Japanese isn't great. And now she's the singer of a band and she's singing in Japanese. So she has to figure out how to, you know, sing these songs, you know, in, in a language she's not a hundred percent, um, you know, uh, fluent in. And, but there's this really awkward scene where some, some boy in her class, like, it's like meets up with her and he's basically like, like, I have a big crush on you and I love you. And, and it's really awkward. She's just like, oh, okay. Um, thank you for that information. Uh, can I go now? <laughs> and not in like a mean way, but just like in an awkward kid way. And um, There's things like that. There's things with um, the guitar player who really kind of like took the reins as being like the band leader. She's um, like they needed a practice space and 
they she goes and hits up her ex-boyfriend who um, works at a like rehearsal studio space so you know and he's kind of like cigarette smoking cool guy like like musician dude you know and he's not even on screen that long but he's on the screen long enough where you you're like okay i can i can kind of see maybe <laughs> maybe this girl had like kind of a wild boyfriend and clearly it didn't work out cuz he's just he doesn't seem like a bad guy but it's not like he's necessarily boyfriend material but they're still close enough where she can like call in a favor from him sort of thing you know it's like little things like that kind of stretched across the movie just you know and there's enough sort of like quiet spots in the movie where you can kind of all these little scenes happen and then you have like a minute or two to sort of absorb like they'll just be like a tracking shot of them walking into a building walking down a hall and you have like these moments where you're watching the movie but you still can have time to reflect on what you just watched in the previous scene you're not just like getting hit over the head with scene after scene after scene and information after you know information that doesn't pay off like everything that's set up in the movie pays off later and also like they shot at a real school. They like they shot at all like real locations, so everything feels real, and that helps. And that really adds to that sort of documentary feel to the movie. But they eventually learn all their songs. Actually, the the most dramatic part of the movie is um the night before the performance. They're at their practice space, and they're up all night practicing, and they fall asleep at the practice space, and. The talent show is going on, and they're next on the list. And they get a phone call from one of the other kids who's running the talent show, and he's like, hey, where are you guys at? You guys are up next. And they all wake up, and they're like, oh, my God, we're going to be late. Like, we need to get down there. They rush down with their instruments down to the school, and it it starts pouring rain. (laughs) Then they show up, and. Um, they get on stage and they're soaking wet and they're just like out of breath and completely freaked out. So, but they get on stage and they, 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 they start their set with, uh, Linda, Linda and the whole auditorium goes crazy. And it's like, it feels like a triumph for them. And you know, the song ends and they all kind of look at each other and give each other like big smiles. Like, yeah, we did it. <laughs> and, then, and then the movie just kind of ends. And yeah, it's a very feel good movie. It's, it's like, like you could show this movie to like, a, like a child, like a little kid. And it's like, when you watch the movie, it doesn't, it's too, I don't want to say arty, but it, it like, like really anyone could watch this, but it doesn't feel like a children's film, but it's, but you can, but a child, a child could watch it and probably get something out of it. I mean, maybe if you have a kid who has like an attention span that's longer than a couple of minutes, because most kids might find this movie kind of boring. So, but, um, I don't find it boring. I find it very entertaining and interesting and, um, and I want and I want I want to mention the cast. Uh, the cast you might recognize. Um, 
um, one of the actresses, um, Aki Maeda, who played the drummer character um, of Kyoko. Okay, so she, uh, Aki Maeda, was in uh, both of, it was in Battle Royale 1 and 2. And if you've seen those movies and then you see this movie, it's it's kind of funny because in Battle Royale, they're all school kids. So they're all wearing like Japanese school kid uniforms. And then this movie, they're wearing Japanese school kid uniforms. So when I'm watching the movie, I feel like like she has this sort of like ominous presence about her because she's wearing like a schoolgirl outfit. And um, I don't know. I just feel like at any time, you know, she might kill one of the other kids or something because also she's the drummer. So she's in the background. Yeah, and if you've seen Battle Royale and you recognize her, it's like, ooh, that's that's weird. It makes this sort of like innocent movie feel a little, a little dark, <laughs> or maybe that's just me. I don't know. But oh, and you also might recognize the singer. Um, she's a Korean actress named uh, Bae Duna. I think I'm. Um, it's rather Duna or Dona. I think, I, um, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but Bay Duna, um, who played the singer in the movie, she, the character of Sun, she's the Korean extreme student. Uh, she was in um, Park Chan-wook's Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance that she did a couple years before Linda, Linda, Linda. So Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance was 2002. This was 2005, I believe. And, uh, yeah, so she was in that, and she was also in, uh, what you want to call it? She was in uh, Bong Joo Ho's The Host. So after Linda, 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 she did The Host in 2006. So she had a pretty good stretch of movies there. She did Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Linda, 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 and The Host. And both those movies are kind of kind of intense, but I like that like in the middle of those two movies, she did this kind of like innocent coming of age film. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I think that's all. It's really all I got to say about uh, Linda, Linda, Linda. I definitely recommend it. It's a, it's a feel good movie. If you know, um, if you're not one of those people who can't do subtitled movies, <laughs> There are subtitles in this movie, but I feel like any good subtitled movie that sort of um, can reach a wider audience, particularly an English-speaking audience, I think it's because... I, I feel like it's usually because the movie's so good that you can really pick up on what's going on in the movie, even if you don't... Even if there wasn't subtitles, even if you don't know exactly what they're saying, you can kind of watch what's going on and kind of get a sense of what's happening. But, but yeah, I like this movie a lot. I, I watch, it's one of those movies I watch like once a year and, um, I definitely recommend it to, uh, anybody really. So yeah, Linda, 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 check it out. The, um, let's see. The next movie is, um, UHF from 1989 starting starring Weird Al Yankovic and directed by Jay Levy and 
I saw this movie when it came out. Like around that time, I was already pretty into movies. Um, so 89 was pretty, pretty strong year. It's like, that's the year that Michael Keaton, Batman came out. And, and I've, and up to that point, I've seen Weird Al on, on MTV, you know, like he was a guy that was sort of always around and he already had been doing his parodies of famous people's, you know, famous musicians, uh, stuff, you know, like dare to be stupid and eat it and all that stuff. So UHF was, it's one of those movies where I like it now and I like it. Like I like, I liked it when I was a kid and I like it now. And sometimes things from when you're a kid, maybe you still like them now, but it like, it didn't, it just didn't age well. Like it didn't, it didn't really stand the test of time. Like maybe some references were a little bit off or, you know, comedy's hard. Not all comedy. Some things are not funny forever. Some types, some styles of comedy. It's like you watch it even like a couple of years down the line. Some movies are just like dog shit. You're like, wow, how did anyone think that this was funny? But not UHF. UHF, in preparation for this episode, I was very much looking forward to rewatching UHF. And um, it, it did not disappoint. And I don't laugh out loud very often, ever. <laughs> I I mean, um, especially during movies, you know, um, I usually end up laughing at things that maybe people don't find funny, uh, <laughs> which is awkward when something really sort of something that's supposed to be serious or sad or dramatic or something in a movie happens, but it just comes off goofy to me and I'll just laugh out loud <laughs> and, um, and no one else is laughing. So that actually happens kind of frequently and I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not really self-conscious about it anymore. <laughs> um, but UHF, I think, um, for me, it aged really well. And basically, it's about uh, uh, Weird Al. Weird Al plays uh, a guy named George Newman, who's a... <sighs> he's like literally a daydreamer who uh, is just sort of floundering in from one uninspired job to another uninspired job. Like, him and his buddy Bob get fired from a lot of sort of low paying ho-hum type jobs and you know and but but he, but George has this imagination it's a sort of wild imagination but he has nowhere to put this imagination of his and you know uh him and his best friend Bob take over Managing a struggling local UF UHF television station, Channel 62. And 
UHF is, it's like a, it, if you had a TV back in the day, um, that had a knob on it, <laughs> if you're old as fuck, or maybe you were just like poor, you know, um, you know, before TVs had thousands of channels, um, pretty much basic. It, it was, it's pretty much, it's below basic cable. You know, there's like, like if you just bought a TV back in the day and maybe it had like antenna, it had like a little antenna built onto it. You can just turn on the TV and then you'll pick up some kind of signal. You just turn the knob like a radio in a car. You just turn the knob and eventually you'll just catch a signal of something. And sometimes the image wouldn't come in and sometimes, you know, it's just static. But uh, UHF stations were on like a like a type of frequency that was, there were, I mean, it was basically channel, local channels that were not nationwide channels, but they were like local channels that were within whatever, um, basically anything that was local, anything that was public access or local news or things like that. And there used to be a lot of that back in the day, just random local channels that would show stuff like, well, actually here's an example. My mother-in-law lives out in the middle of nowhere, like just outside of Sacramento, California, in this very rural area. That's actually very cool. And her house is pretty awesome. Actually. It's like, it used to be a barn. It's basically this, a converted barn that's now like like a house now. So, but she doesn't have, you know, she doesn't have fucking uh, a fancy schmancy TV with like a million channels and shit. She basically just has like a really basic TV and all the channels she has is whatever is local to the Sacramento area. And one of the channels that she gets, um, has a channel called me TV and me TV. And I know I've brought it up before on another episode, but me TV is awesome. It has, it's, it basically shows reruns of like older shows, but the format is kind of situated in a way where like, if you're like a fan of those things, you'll get a nice big block of time to watch those things. Like for instance, there's like in the middle of the day, there's um, like through the afternoon on me TV, they'll have um, like star Trek. So they'll show 60 star Trek. They'll show um, a couple episodes of uh, next generation. They'll do uh, deep space nine. They'll do enterprise and a couple other things. And basically they'll just be like a few hours in the middle of the day where it's just star Trek. And then later on um, in the day, like early evening, they do like um, Twilight Zone. I think they did Night Gallery. Um, stuff like that. So and and then they'll do kind of random, almost like Nick at Night type of shows, like Columbo or like Rockford files, like stuff like that. And a lot of that stuff I really, really like, like I like Columbo. <laughs> um, 
yeah. And so like stuff like me TV is just like, you know, I mean, if you just have, if you put a, a metal coat hanger into the back of your fucking old TV, like you'll pick up a UHF station. That's basically the, the short of it. Even though that wasn't short. I rambled about that for like 10 minutes. <laughs> but, um, so Weird Al, George and his buddy, Bob, they, they get a, um, they get the job managing this station. That sort of, it's losing money. It's on its last leg. Uh, no one really watches it and they drastically change the format. They, they realized one day when, after they took it over that even after they took it over, they're still losing money and the channel is going to be basically out of business soon. And so they drastically reach, they changed the format and packed the channel with all this absurd content that might not seem so ridiculous in the post-reality show world that we live in now. But then it seems preposterous. But it it's content that struck a chord with the community to, um, to the extent that it, at one part of the movie, they get the, uh, a list of the ratings of all the channels in town. And they ended up beating out all of the major networks because they're not on a major network. They're just basically a, a small local broadcasting signal that barely exists. But once they changed all their show formats around, they ended up um, beating all the major networks um, in the ratings. And one of the, the uh, unexpected star of channel 62 is a guy named Stanley Spatowski who was played by Michael Richards, who you may remember as uh, Kramer from Seinfeld. And he was also in, so I married an ax murderer. <laughs> had a small, small part. Um, he, and his show is a, a Stanley Spadowski's clubhouse. And it's a wildly popular kid show where Stanley yells the N word at four year olds. So, <laughs> anyways, they have all these other weird shows too that they, um, they will, and I, I just, un- unlike Siskel and Ebert, who I grew up watching Siskel and Ebert, but even as a kid, I didn't understand what a person who was. I didn't understand smugness as a child, but I knew it existed. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, like, like when you're a child, maybe you don't understand jealousy or hate really. Like you have a kind of, you feel anger maybe as a child, but you don't understand, um, emotionally or intelligently, like what your anger is and like where it comes from and and how to deal with it but as a child i i knew when i saw or heard somebody who was a smug asshole and something in my brain was like that's bad like 
I was very sensitive to tone as a child. Like maybe I didn't understand exactly what somebody was talking about in the context of what, of the substance of what they were saying, but tone I picked up on where I could tell if somebody was being malicious or in this case, a smug asshole. And when I watched Siskel and Ebert, I was like, these two middle-aged, ugly men are smug assholes. (laughs) These guys get paid way too much money to have what nowadays is like, I mean, there's a million Siskel and Eberts. I could be clumped in as a Siskel and Ebert type, like those, a movie reviewer person. And uh, I mean, they weren't the only people at the time doing that. There was, what was it? Gene Shalitz, you know, there's people like that. And back in those days, but they, I don't know. They weren't particularly charming. They sounded robotic. And on a personal note, they disliked really good movies. And it's a shame that they didn't uh, live long enough to... Maybe they did. I don't know. To basically revisit some of the movies they gave a thumbs down to and um, and change the review of certain movies. I'll look that up. You know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt... You know, uh, because they have passed on. They both are dead now. But maybe they maybe they did uh, go back and uh, re-review some films that they didn't give favorable reviews to or didn't give enough of a chance or um, had prejudices in their mind that they just refused to enjoy a movie for one reason or another and just gave it a thumbs-down review and... Um, but Siskel and Ebert did not give UHF a good review at all. Neither one of them did. And it's not like, uh, I know they didn't, what was it? I believe it was, uh, I think Gene Siskel gave, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing a thumbs up. But Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs down, and I think they, I think they may have both gave Blade Runner a thumbs down. Roger Ebert may have actually given it a thumbs up, but Gene Siskel gave it a thumbs down. But at any rate, um, yeah, they didn't like UHF and. I don't see, I don't understand why, you know, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead people, but I'm glad those two faggots are dead. Okay. Okay. We don't need Cisco Lambert. You got me. You have the Skeleton Factory podcast. All right. You got me now. I am the modern day. Siskel and Ebert, but I'm also 
without you, I don't have me. You know what I mean? I'm just a guy talking alone to nobody. But I'm not. I'm talking to you. So, And I can share these things that live in my head with you. And for that, I thank you. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Our first movie is named UHF, and it stars Weird Al Yankovic, a comedian who's been successful for the last 10 years with his parodies of hit songs and music videos. Unfortunately, he is not as successful with the challenge of a full-length movie, and UHF adopts the shotgun approach to movie comedy, Yankovic firing everything and hoping that something will hit the target. The movie is sort of about how he wants to run his own TV station, but then it goes all over the map with parodies of movie ads and TV satires that don't fit into that story format. We never know what the underlying reality of this film is, and so maybe there could be a funny movie about running this obscure station, but we find out here that UHF is not it. How many jokes do you think he attempts? Maybe 200 or something like that in the course of the movie? I wasn't counting. Well, how many laughs? That was easy to count. None. 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 Not one for me. No, I, didn't I think, well, you know, there's a thing when, when movies start having show signs that are supposed to be funny, that's when they really get desperate. And this picture does that a number of times. I, I didn't laugh at a single thing. I was flabbergasted. Well, the movie violates uh, one of my little laws, the, the first law of funny names, which is that any movie that uses funny names in an attempt to get a laugh is probably in desperation. You mean like Weird Al Yankovic? I think that's, I think that's his real name. Yeah. Yeah, weird was his given name, right? Next film, it's called Valentino Returns. I'm still talking about UHF. Um, it's got a really great cast. It's got great music. It's got a random moment in it where um, there's actually some weird kind of like large Marge type of claymation that goes on. That the actually the uh, Chiodo brothers, I believe they did that little tiny snippet there's like one little snippet where one of the characters is actually an alien and he fucking flies away in a spaceship at the end and because he helps our heroes weird al and bob and everybody else at channel 62 he helps them uh um win not win but basically helps them um well they had to have a telethon they had to have a telethon to save channel 62 because the Rival station channel eight in town was severely threatened by the success of channel 62. And instead of just having a healthy competition locally for viewers eyes, uh, the owner of channel eight decided to muscle in on channel 62 and buy the company. But there was an agreement that if weird Al could make uh, it was $75,000 in two days. He can keep channel 62. So they decided to have a 24 hour uh, telethon to raise money to save channel 62. And, um, and one of the characters basically gets some dirt on the, uh, the rival channel eight, uh, president's, um, they kind of project Veritas him a little bit, like got a, got camera footage of him saying some very unkind things about the public and, and channel eight's listeners. And that's not good. And so, uh, so that character basically, um, the whole time he was a, uh, he was a alien. <laughs> 
And at the very end, he's like, oh, well, I have to go back to my planet now, Weird Al. And Weird Al's like, uh, okay. Weird Al just has no idea and he's an alien. He's just like, okay, well, thank you. Bye. And then the dude's face turns into a fucking, like, multi-eyed uh, claymation um, creature. And then he gets sucked into the light of a uh, UFO and disappears. But um, I believe that was done by the Chiodo brothers who... If you go to like horror movie conventions, like they show up all the time. They're like these sort of like special effect geniuses who had like that were a really big deal in the eighties. Like they like they did all the stuff for um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. If you've ever seen that movie, it's wonderful. It's very creative. It's very strange. For some people, it may be complete nightmare fuel, but um, yeah. And the uh, the bad guy in the movie, got to give a massive shout out to uh, Kevin McCarthy, not the politician from California, but there was actually an actor named Kevin McCarthy. And, uh, he did a lot of great shit in the fucking 80s, and he's one of those guys where when you see his face, you're like, oh, it's that guy. He's He's one of those character actor guys who's like, he's that guy. You never know his name, but you just see him in shit, and yeah. And he's a perfect, that's an 80s thing. It's like bad guys in movies are described as gray-haired, business-suited white men who are angry. And that's like the perfect villain in movies back in the days. But you need someone who has some character, you know. And Kevin McCarthy's fucking excellent in it. And um, I'm I obviously am leaving a lot out of UHF because I don't know if you haven't seen it. I want you to see it. It's funny. I don't want to give away Joe. It's one thing to like. I'm not like I don't really believe in fucking spoilers. Like I, f- I feel like a movie's good no matter what. But um, well, when it comes to jokes, when it comes to humor, you know, I feel awkward explaining a joke that takes place or repeating a joke because jokes are very much dependent on who's delivering the joke context of the joke. And it's very much different than like an action movie or a horror film where you're like the monster comes out and kills the guy and then whatever, you know what I mean? Like you're just like, okay. And then you see the movie and you're like, Oh wow. That scene where the monster comes out and kill guys actually looks really fucking cool, you know, because maybe the special effects are awesome or you didn't see it coming or, you know, the suspense of the scene is so awesome. Like things like that can get spoiled because it's like, it's going to look good no matter what. But jokes are one of those things where it's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta see the joke play out. So, and this movie's nothing but like joke after joke after joke after joke. And what fucking Siskel and Ebert don't understand is they think that's like they were just throwing joke after joke in the movie because they were what they were calling shotgunning the movie, where they were just shooting out a, just spraying jokes at the crowd, hoping that something would land. And according to them, none of the jokes landed, which is absurd it's ridiculous there's there's all this odd humor that you just don't see nowadays you know what i mean like you know it's like 
don't know if you watch like Tim and Eric back in the day or something like that, like things that are just out of place and weird, but are funny and aren't necessarily meta or anything like that, but it takes absurdity and applies it to comedy, but is completely wholehearted and commits to it. And to do that well is incredibly difficult. And there, I mean, there hasn't been a movie like this, like made sense like that in itself, like this movie's hilarious, but even like the style of this movie just can't be recreated meaningfully or in a way where it, people are impressed by it, you know, and you know, this is, this is one of those movies that's, you had all the right characters you had like everything just came together. Like it was, everything fell into place perfectly. So definitely check out UHF. Um, you can watch it with your parents or your grandma. <laughs> your parents probably were probably saw it when they were young. <laughs> this was 1989 for God's sake. So, um, yeah, I think it's a movie that's, uh, definitely one of those once a year movies, just like, I think Linda, Linda, Linda is one of those things where it's like you watch all these depressing, over bloated and like budgeted horseshit things like don't look up on Netflix. I don't, I don't, I don't know how much that movie cost, but I guarantee it was whatever it was, it was too much and they didn't get much out of it. UHF probably didn't cost that much to make, but it's fucking brilliant. So, and I think people deserve to see things like that. Like you see something that's sort of like, like, do we have funny enough concepts and the right people to like act out those jokes on camera and cobble that into a good movie And for UHF? Yes. And it's one of those movies, like, when you watch and then you watch movies nowadays, you're just like, holy shit, I can't believe how good movies used to be with, like, a fairly minimal budget. Anyways, I'm I'm going crazy here. UHF. Watch it. It's hilarious. It's awesome. And um, you know what? While you're at it, if you like watching, uh, if you like watching music like watching concerts and you're not a who's scared of fucking germs and refuses to go into any um, public spaces because of super spreader event hysteria that's been beat into your head. Well, in this year of 2022, Weird Al Yankovic is on his... <clears throat> Let me see if I can get this out in one go. The unfortunate return of the ridiculous, self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour. And, um, yeah, it begins in April. And with special guest Emo Phillips, who was in UHF. And he's kind of an odd, weird, uh, 80s comedian. And 
if you want to check him out, there's tons of stuff out there of Emo Phillips. He had he came out with he had albums and shit. I had an Emo Phillips cassette tape back in the day, but yeah, he's he's going to be opening for Weird Al. And um, let's see on the website, it, there's a note that says, "Please note, this is a scaled down tour with limited production, no costumes, props, or video screens, in smaller theaters and more intimate settings." And Al's set list will be comprised almost entirely of his original non-parody songs. Holy shit. I did not know that. That is awesome. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that Weird Al Yankovic, he really, his bread and butter is like doing parody songs of more well-known pop songs. Okay. Taking songs that you've heard of that are on radio, MTV, whatever, and making basically a funny version of that song. But Weird Al's band, who is kind of a really awesome polka band, which is a genre of music I don't think most, I think is kind of a genre that's kind of forgotten about, (laughs) but um, his band actually has a lot of uh, original stuff too, and it's fucking awesome, and it's, it's a very good band, and this tour, at least according to his website, is going to be a lot of his original non-parody songs. And now I'm extra excited about that. So let me scroll down here. Looks like he's going to be, let's say he's going through East Coast. He's going to go through the Midwest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh my God. He's doing two nights in San Francisco for all my San Francisco barrier people. God, he's doing a bunch of dates in California. Oh my God. Please tell me he's coming to Texas. Mmm. Come on, Weird Al. Wow, this tour is fucking long. Here we go. Yes. Weird Al is going to be in Texas in September. It's kind of a ways away, but that's okay. Um, he's going to be in Lubbock, Texas on September 29th. Dallas on the 30th of September. He's going to be in Houston on October 1st. And he's going to be right here in Austin on October 2nd at Austin City Limits at the Moody Theater. I will be there for that. That sounds fucking awesome. And then a couple days later, he's going to be in San Antonio. Wow. That's fucking great. That is a hefty fucking tour, too. He's doing April through October. So, yeah. Weird Al Yankovic. And he's been around my entire life. You know, there's like Weird Al's just, he's always been around. And he's always doing shit. Always making music. He's on TV shows. He's, you know, he's just somebody who's always been doing his thing. And it doesn't look like he's ever going to stop. So, (laughs) God bless Weird Al Yankovic. And Emo Phillips. (laughs) I had no idea Emo Phillips was still around doing shit. But that is fucking great. Please check out UHF. It's available everywhere. It's fucking great. And it'll make you laugh. Because everyone deserves to have a fucking belly laugh. Um, except Siskel and Ebert. Because they're dead. Alright. 
let's get to the last movie. Last movie. The last movie on this list of feel-good movies. Movies that are not particularly challenging and they're enjoyable and they leave you warm and fuzzy feeling inside and maybe you'll have a laugh or two is 1999's Detroit Rock City directed by Adam Rifkin who was the director of The Chase which I need to rewatch that that's one of those movies where in my mind I think that movie's awesome but I wonder if it held up. I don't know. The chase with um, Charlie Sheen and Chrissy Swanson, who I had a big crush on as a kid. She was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, not the television show. And yeah, Chrissy Swanson, super hot. And um, oh, and, and yeah, it does the chase. So basically, uh, uh, Charlie Sheen's a escape convict. Who I guess didn't do what he got arrested for, but so he got scared and he ran, and he kidnaps Chrissy Swanson at a liquor store with a candy bar, but she thinks it's a gun, and um, is basically like, "We're we're driving to Mexico. Once I get across the border, I'll let you go." And her dad's Ray Weiss, who's awesome. If you, like Ray Weiss is also one of those guys who's like. Oh, that guy. <laughs> like, he was in Twin Peaks, and he was in Robocop. Like, if you see Ray Weiss, you're like, oh, yeah, I know who that guy is. But uh, she, he plays Chrissy Swanson's dad, and they're being pursued by uh, Henry Rollins, who's a cop, which is, you know, that's that's kind of funny. And um, what's that fat dude's name? I don't know. I know he was in City Slickers, and he was in Billy Madison, the guy who was the... Uh, Played the, the, I think he was a teacher who was secretly a masked pro wrestler named the Revolting Blob. That guy, he's in. He's also he's he's Henry Rollins' partner in the chase. I'm gonna have to rewatch that. But anyways, that's the only other Adam Rifkin movie that um, I don't know that I what I actually actually enjoy besides Detroit Rock City. So basically, the plot is four high school stoner. Kiss fans go on this crazy fuck adventure to attend a Kiss concert in Detroit. So the whole movie is to lead up to getting to that concert. And like most things as a teenager, especially pre-cell phone, if you if you were a teenager when cell phones were like barely a fucking thing, like getting anything done was a mission. Like figuring out where to go to a house party or a fucking awesome orchard party or fucking trying to buy weed or, you know, you got to buy mushrooms and or acid. And it's like, okay, I'm, we're going to buy it off of a buddy of mine, but it's like, it's like a buddy of mine can get us some acid, but he doesn't have it. His cousin has it because his cousin's an acid dealer. So what we have to do is drive out to his cousin's house, which is two hours away. And then you get to the cousin's house and the cousin's not there. So you have to hang out with his fucking weird roommates. who are doing crank 
off a coffee table and listening to Pantera and until homeboy's cousin shows up and actually sells you the fucking acid and you know, and then you have to drive two hours back home. So by the time you actually have the drugs in your hand, like an entire fucking day went by and you're just like fucking too tired to even do the drugs. You're just like, fuck, I just burned an entire day. Just, trying to get high nowadays fucking drugs just fall from the sky but this is one of those movies that's like these guys all these guys want to do is go see kiss but just getting to that point is this fucking insurmountable fucking um adventure so so the cast is um you have the character of hawk who's played by uh edward furlong who Everyone knows as as John Connor from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And um, he was also in American History X. He was, and he was in uh, Pet Cemetery too. So uh, now he, I don't think he does fucking anything besides conventions now. Really? Uh, I mean, does he? I don't know. Um, and then there's the character of Lex played by Giuseppe Andrews, who was also an American History X. Maybe that's what ruined those two guys' careers. They played Nazi skinheads in a movie, and then they're fucking, you know, they got typecasted, and they weren't, They just didn't do any movies after that. I don't know. Um, but Giuseppe Andrews was also in uh, Cabin Fever. He was like the police deputy guy, the party man guy, which is like, I don't know. It's weird. Like, I know uh, what was it? Uh, Eli Roth. He directed Cabin Fever, and he did uh, you know the Green Inferno and Hostel and shit. And he's one of those dudes who like he has like a TV show that's like about the history of horror and stuff like that. I haven't seen it, but people tell me it's really good, and I should check it out. And I totally will. But he's one of those guys where I'm like, the pe- the kind of hate people have for like Rob Zombie. I'm like, why don't like. I feel like they should have that for fucking Eli Roth. <laughs> Am I wrong? I don't know. Cause I feel like a lot of the stuff he does is sort of like, I don't know. Like I didn't like hostile. And also like actually when a hostile came out, I was living in a hostel. I was essentially homeless. I had enough money to live in a hostel, but I didn't really have like an apartment or anything like that. And, when that fucking movie came out, my reactionary mother called me and was like, is it safe for you to live in a hostel? I hear there's a movie where people who live in hostels are getting, uh, getting killed by fucking, you know, Eastern European supermodels. And I was like, I wish I fucking wish, but, um, I don't know. I did. I liked cabin fever. I think it's gross and I think it's ridiculous and, you know, it's kind of dumb, but I still enjoy it. I like it's dumb, but I enjoy it because it's in the context of like a gory horror movie, and, it, and so that's cool. And then okay, so you have the uh, character um, of Trip, pl- uh, played by James DeBello, who was also in Cabin Fever. He's like the main dude, bro, aggressive jock guy um, in Cabin Fever. If you've seen that movie, so. Both those guys, Giuseppe Andrews and James DeBello, were in Cabin Fever. And the last character is uh, 
Jam. Um, his name is Jeremiah, but his but his cool nickname is Jam. And Jam is played by uh, Sam Huntington, who was, um, I mean, I don't think he did as much stuff as some of the other guys in terms of like stuff that people would know. He was in a movie called Fanboys, and I think that was in 2009. And Fanboys is basically a movie about a bunch of friends who were really big Star Wars fans as kids. And the movie takes place right before the Star Wars prequels came out. So it's uh so this group of friends were basically obsessed with Star Wars and then like after Return of the Jedi there were just no more Star Wars movies. There was no more Star Wars media. It just disappeared. And then so basically fandom took over like Star Wars conventions and shit like that. And, you know, uh, people making their own like fan fiction videos, <laughs> things like that. So uh, fanboys is basically uh, the news. What was it? Uh, the, the pre the first prequel movie is coming out and these friends meet back up at their hometown to go see the premiere of this new Star Wars movie which was uh, The Phantom Menace. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Phantom Menace was the first Star Wars prequel, right? Sure. Let's go with that. Anyways, it's their journey of like, they all get in a van and they all are driving to see this new Star Wars movie. And it's like, it's a big nostalgia fest for them. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, those movies kind of, you know, they suck. <laughs> And that's actually brought up uh, in the movie at one point where they get to they it's this long story, but they finally make it to it's actually kind of like this movie a little bit, but they um they finally make it to the fucking uh, movie theater and they're just like What if this new Star Wars movie sucks? And then like it just cuts to credits. <laughs> but um fanboys kind of like Detroit Rock City it's not really about Star Wars and this movie isn't really not about Kiss it's about their journey to go see Kiss and it's about their fandom which if if any band a movie about fandom I think Kiss probably is like the the best band you can really use because Kiss fans the Kiss army you know they're rabid they're there's fucking millions of Kiss fans out there. You know, it's like they're kind of a big fucking deal. Um, so yes, they. Uh, what else was uh, Jam Sam Huntington and he was um, in a show called Being Human on the Sci-Fi Channel, which I haven't seen the show, but uh, from what I hear, it's like a werewolf television show. So that's kind of interesting. Movie about werewolves. I don't know. I, I think people have got um that Twilight movies. I think a generation of people like they associate werewolves with Twilight. And um that's a shame because there's you know really awesome movies out there, like The Howling and you know, even even movies like the the Monster Squad. There's like a guy who's a fucking werewolf, 
And that werewolf in the Monster Squad is awesome. He's actually, like, scary. Like, if there was just a movie about that werewolf, like, that itself would be a good movie. Or if you want to get really corny, there's a movie called Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, James Spader before he lost all his hair and got really fat. Um, I like that movie. The movie's, like, creepy and weird, but it's a fucking werewolf movie, and I like it. Anyways, enough about fucking werewolves. I'm probably not going to watch that show anyways. <laughs> Being Human. I don't know. I'm sure someone listening to this has, has seen Being Human on sci-fi and was like, I like that show. It's fucking awesome. So, anyways, our char- our four characters, uh, Hawk, Lex, Trip, and Jam, actually have a Kiss tribute band of their own called Mystery. And... After, um, so there's a scene where, uh, Jam's very religious kiss hating mother played by Lynn Shay. Uh, you know, she was in a nightmare on Elm street. She was in Wes Craven's new nightmare. Um, she was in critters one and two. And I think people nowadays will probably know her from, she was in the insidious movies. She's like the psychic lady guy like yeah she's like the psychic lady the older psychic lady she was also in kingpin she was uh <laughs> she was in uh she was woody harrelson's um landlord in the kingpin movie where he can't pay his rent and she's basically like like you got to fucking you gotta fucking eat my pussy and we have to fuck. <laughs> or I'm gonna kick you out of your house sort of thing and it's gross and... But it's very funny and she's... She's pretty good, actually. She's she's pretty funny. She's a pretty good actress. Oh, also, here's... Here you go. Here's a fun fact. Very fun fact about Lynn Shay, And not that her brother is uh, Robert Shea who runs... I don't know if he still runs it, but uh, New Line Cinema, who got really big by putting out the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I think they also put out the Lord of the Rings movies, right? That's weird. Anyways, uh, Lynn Shay was in this movie called Hester Street. And uh, that's funny because Hester's my last name, which is kind of a weird last name. Like, it's not a common name. But she was in some movie called Hester Street. I have no idea what it's about. But in her IMDb, the character that she plays in uh, Hester Street is, uh, her character's name is simply Whore. She plays the character of Whore on Hester Street. It's like, oh, that's funny. I found that amusing. I laughed to myself when I read that. Anyways, Lin Shay, uh, she burns our four heroes' kiss tickets. And um, because, you know, kisses the devil, fucking knights in Satan's service, that whole thing. Um, she burns, when she finds the ticket, she freaks out, burns them, and then ships jam off to boarding school. She's like, I don't want to deal with you. I don't want you hanging out with your stupid kiss loving friends. You're going to go to boarding school. You're going to go to, 
Catholic boarding school and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get some Jesus education. I saw a uh, Kiss cover band called Destroyer back in like 2009, and uh, at this place called Annie Social Club in San Francisco, which doesn't exist anymore. It used to be the uh, CW Saloon, the Covered Wagon Saloon, and it was a awesome venue and bar and it had I saw so many goddamn good shows there um and they didn't give a fuck like I'm pretty sure Destroyer I mean Destroyer the band they're a Kiss cover band but they're basically Kiss so for for your money for the money if you want to see Kiss but you don't want to pay to go see Kiss Go see Destroyer. They're great. I don't know if they're still around doing shows or not, but they're fucking legit. They have the makeup. I think the Gene Simmons guy actually blows fire, maybe. And, um, yeah, they're, they're fun, especially if you're drunk. And any social club is a great place to get fucking hammered. And, and like, if you're already drunk, I actually, when I went there to go see Destroyer, I wasn't even going to see them. I went there with a buddy of mine to go see... Well, actually, there was a separate room in the back where they would do karaoke once a night or once a week. And we went there to go do fucking karaoke. And when we walked in the door, there was a band playing. We were like, what the fuck? Because there was the main stage and then in the back there was a small room where sometimes they did shows, but they usually did stuff like um, karaoke. So we walk in and there's a fucking Kiss cover band playing. We're like, this is fucking awesome. So we watched Destroyer, and then we went in the back and got drunk and did a bunch of fucking David Allen Co. songs. <laughs> it was a good time. Um, but yeah, if you have a chance to see a Kiss cover band, go see them. Because you know, Kiss is allegedly fucking, they already did their last tour last year, and they're not going to fucking ever tour again. But you know we've 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 heard that story before. Black Sabbath has had how many fucking final tours? You know, I think Kiss might fucking squeeze out another couple of tours. There's there's just too much money to be made. You know what I mean? There's just there's just too much money to be made. So why am I talking about Kiss cover bands? Anyways, <laughs> my point is is Kiss is one of it's like Shakespeare. You know what I mean? It's like Kiss at this point is like Shakespeare where you can you don't necessarily need the original cast from the Globe Theater with fucking William Shakespeare standing there like showing fucking Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth or some shit um The Tragedy of Macbeth by the way the Joel Cohen movie is out right now I We'll talk about that next episode because I'm going to go see that shit soon. It looks fucking awesome. Anyways, Kiss at this point, I feel, is kind of like Shakespeare. Like, as time goes on, really, you can change the cast. You can get anyone to play fucking, you know, not anyone. (laughs) But, I mean, you can find qualified people to play members of Kiss. And I think... um. I don't think that's a controversial statement at all because, I mean, what was it? Fucking, 
I don't remember. The, I don't remember offhand the dude who's been playing drums for Kiss and Peter Chris's fucking makeup for like ten years, and Tommy Thayer. I think he's been in Kiss for like ten years at this point. That's how how long Kiss has been around. Tommy Thayer has been dressed like Ace Freely, playing Ace Freely fucking songs for fucking over a decade, and he does a great job. So, and and. This is anecdotal, of course, but I've seen a Kiss cover band, and I think there's absolutely no reason why you can't have fucking just some random people who can play instruments and look like and sound like members of Kiss to just keep going out on the road as Kiss. I don't see why not. What else are you going to do? Have, like, a hologram fucking Kiss experience? That sounds fucking stupid. No one wants to see Coachella Tupac kiss. I don't want to see that. I'd rather see dudes up there blowing fire, spitting blood, fucking doing smoking guitar solos. Like, I'd rather just see that. Knowing full well that they're not actually Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley or Ace Freely or fucking Peter Cripps. Like, I'm fine with that. And you fuck, you can get fucking somebody in Eric Carr's fucking <laughs> makeup. And it's like, okay, we're going to do some songs off of fucking Creatures of the Night. Let's get our Eric Carr drummer fucking guy out here. You know, that's just my opinion. And I'm a Kiss fan. You know, I don't necessarily need the actual members to be there. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just me. Um, also, like, if you're a Kiss fan and you like Detroit Rock City, like, like I, I don't want to assume, like, everyone's seen Detroit Rock City, but... Like, if you've seen Detroit Rock City and you're like, oh, that's, I like that movie. Or maybe you're like, I've seen that back in the day and I liked it, but I haven't seen it since. Maybe I'll go back and check it out. And maybe you also kind of dig Kiss a little bit. Like, you like some of their songs. Like, go check out this documentary called Kiss Loves You. Kiss Loves You was, whatchamacallit. Sorry, I got sidetracked for a second. Oh yeah, Kiss Loves You is a uh, it's this documentary that was shot over quite a few years. Like it took like it took a long time to shoot this fucking thing, but it was done most it was shot mostly through the 90s. And it was from what I can tell pre-Kiss reunion. So Kiss kind of like Star Wars there was a period of time where Kiss broke up and then they announced a big reunion. You know, they had their whole 80s albums, you know, the the no makeup Kiss where they were the, the Kiss Unmasked era where they did like Animalize and Lick It Up. And, you know, they did their MTV Unplugged and they did all that shit. And and then they just kind of, they left the whole 70s Kiss makeup thing behind. You know, just to kind of keep up with the times of 80s hair metal, basically. Let's see, I believe it was the summer of 1996. Kiss announced they're going to do a reunion world tour. And I believe it was 200 dates around the world <laughs> spread over, um, 
Well, it was spread over a year, basically. 200 shows in, a, in, a, in like just over a year. Uh, just over a year, yeah. And, you know, in, in, in the documentary Kiss Loves You is basically like that era of the early 90s before Kiss had the reunion. So all that was kind of like Star Wars. There was There was the albums that they did. In the 70s, there was all the stuff they did in the 80s, and then they just kind of stopped. And then all that the fans had um, to sort of keep their fandom alive, there was, and it's in the documentary, there was KISS conventions, which actually looked pretty fucking fun. Like, I'd go to a KISS convention. Um, There was KISS conventions. There were people... Um, there's a bunch of Kiss cover bands in the documentary, so and some of them kind of have rivalries with each other. <laughs> it's just funny. It's like who's the better Paul Stanley, you know? And it's pretty good. Like it's and it's and it's right before. Like and it kind of a lot of so much of it was shot before the 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 reunion was announced in 1996, and then it you know. It kind of covers that portion of it too, but uh, yeah. So if you're into Detroit Rock City, the movie, or and you're you know you're into Kiss at all, um, and you like documentaries, like watch Kiss Loves You. It's it's kind of corny, but it's it's fun. And I'm a Kiss fan, so it's like I, I like it. I, I watched it during I came across it during 2020, and I got a kick out of it. So because I had a lot of time to just fucking sit around and just listen to music. And then somehow I came across Kiss Loves You. Um, anyways, a um, you know, I look at this cast, like these four guys, fucking Edward Furlong and fucking the other three guys. <laughs> like, I don't under, like they should make a sequel to Detroit Rock City. Like, it should be made with the exact same cast. But it should be shot in the 90s pre-Kiss reunion. You know, it should be shot like in 1995, 1996. Like before Kiss actually announced the reunions. Because Detroit Rock City takes place in 1978, I believe. So like right when their album Love Gun came out. Which is a fucking awesome album, by the way. Um, it's probably one of my... Yeah it's, yeah, it's like one of my favorite Kiss albums, but... It's like, get all... Get the four original guys together. Get Lynn Shea, she's still alive. And make a fucking sequel to Detroit Rock City. But it's like, the guy... Because those guys were in high school in the fucking 70s. In, in, in the... You know, in the movie. The four characters are in high school and... 1978, they should fucking have like, and they're probably age appropriate now, like just have a movie that takes place in like 1996 and it's like these guys who were giant Kiss fans and maybe maybe some of them moved on from listening to Kiss. Maybe one of the guys is still in a fucking cover band. Maybe they're all still in their cover band mystery. Maybe they're just still holding on to their fandom and them being in this fucking Kiss cover band is like fucking with their marriages and 
their jobs and all the shit. Like, I think that would actually be a pretty good movie. Get whoever directed Cobra Kai to make that. Put it on Netflix. That would be good. There you go. Someone can send me a check for that idea. That's a good idea. And, uh, and Kiss is still alive, so the members, at least. I mean, you can still have them show up in the movie and, you know, have these guys all fucking grown up and bloated and fat and shit, like, getting stoked about a Kiss reunion. They're like, that, fuck. Tell me that's not a good idea. That'd be a fucking great idea. I'd watch that. It'd basically be like that movie Fanboys, except it's Kiss. Like, it's a good template. You gotta cast it right, and it's gotta be written well. But who doesn't want to see 2022 Edward Furlong, huh? Anyways. Mm. Let me get back to the movie. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, Lynn Shay hates Kiss because Kiss is, uh, uh, you know, they're in league with the devil and she burns their tickets and now these guys have no Kiss show. So there's a brief moment of redemption in the movie where uh, the character of Trip, um, he's in class, but he fakes pissing his pants so he can get out of shop class uh, to go call a radio station at a payphone in, in you know in in a school, um, he calls this radio station to win kiss tickets, and um, he fucking wins the tickets. You know, so all the guys get out of class, and he's like, "Yo, we won these fucking tickets. We got to fucking drive to Detroit and pick them up at the radio station." So the character of Lex, he's the only one who can get a hold of a car. His Mom, who's a gynecologist, has, like, a fucking Volvo. And uh, it's a whole thing where, like, it's like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off thing where it's, like, Cameron's dad's car. It's like, we can't we can't fuck up my mom's car. You know, like, she'll kill me. If, you know, she's out of town. She'll kill me if, like, I fuck up her car sort of thing. So, it, But it's to go see Kiss. So, you know, who gives a shit? Little fucker. <laughs> so they take Lex's gynecologist mom's car, and off to Detroit they go. But first, they have to bust Jam at a Catholic boarding school. Remember? He got sent to a fucking boarding school, and they can't leave their homie behind. And they won four tickets, so they, they got to go get their fucking homie. So they drive over to the um, the boarding school, and they figured the best way to bust him out of fucking boarding school is intercepting a pizza that's being delivered to the head priest of the boarding school and cover the pizza with magic mushrooms and the priests ensuing mushroom trip uh, would be a big enough distraction for our heroes to sneak jam uh, out of the school and off to the kiss concert. And there's a whole scene where that takes place. And I'm like, okay, it's silly, but it's, you know, I'll allow it. So on the way to Detroit, our heroes, um, our heroes of the band of the <laughs> tribute band mystery. Um, well, along the way, they violently assault two disco Guido guys. They tie them tie them to a guardrail and um, paint their faces like Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley and leave them for dead, uh, presumably. And then Hawk um, dumps their cool gold firebird into a fucking ditch filled with shit water. And, um, I mean, these guys kind of had it coming, but also 
our main characters. Did they overreact? I don't know. Because these guys did kind of beat them up a little bit and then humiliate them. and ah, Yeah, fuck them. You know, that's, that's what they get. That's, that's what happens when two guys trying to impress a couple of girls, you know, fuck with four guys who um, are KISS fans. <laughs> so one of the uh, Guido's lady friends, because the two guys that they fucking beat up, uh, there's these, like, these two chicks in the car with them. And uh, one of the lady friends is named Christine, and she basically hitches a ride with our heroes off in... Um, so we fast forward to Detroit and the guys get to the radio station and to pick up their tickets that trip one. And, uh, it turns out that trip turns out that after trip won the tickets, um, he didn't give the station his information. He just, in his excitement, he just hung up the phone without giving the radio station his information. So, when he, they get to the station, the DJ guy has to explain this to him. So he's like, "Like, well, we didn't, you didn't give, we didn't know who you were, so we were forced to give the tickets away to the next caller." So the guys have to leave the fucking station, all dejected and sad, and um, so you know, and, and Trip is is a dumb. Stoner. He's a mix of Jay from Jane Silent Bob meets like Beavis and Butthead. He's just like a just like those three characters just smashed together into one dumb high school guy. He's basically retarded. So it's it's all bad news for our heroes and it's gonna get it's gonna get worse. While they were inside at the station, uh Christine, who was supposed to, you know, stay with the car. Uh, they get outside, and she's gone. The car's gone. So they're like, fuck. She stole the car. This is not good. So now they have no tickets and no ride. Um, You know, and Lex is freaking out. He's like, fuck, my mom's car. That's not good. And we have no kiss tickets. Like, this is just all around bad. So the guys have under two hours to scrounge together some uh, tickets. So they all split up. And... Um, at this point in the movie, the four guys go their separate ways. And then we kind of, the story kind of goes from one guy to the next kind of seeing like, how do they go about trying to track down some kiss tickets before the show is about to happen? Cause the show is going to happen. It's happening. So they got a little bit of time to try to rather get money together or find a scalper to get them tickets or something. So they split up. Uh, Hawk runs into a scalper and convinces the scalper to, well, the scalper rather, um, convinces Hawk to enter a stripping contest for a chance to win a hundred dollars, a hundred dollar cash prize at this male strip club that happens to be like right across the street. So Hawk gets in there. Uh, he gets completely shit faced thanks to a horny 42 year old Shannon Tweed. Yes, Gene Simmons' wife is in the movie, and she plays a woman who uh, 
of all the hunky guys walking around the fucking this this really weird male strip club, like the only people who inhabit this strip club are like like middle aged to elderly housewives. <laughs> Shannon Tweed's sitting around. And this is like nineteen ninety nine Shannon Tweed, so she's still looking really good. Um but uh, I looked it up and she was forty two during the filming of this and Edward Furlong's character of, of Hawk um, I believe he's supposed to be 16 and he, you know, that's a little weird. She's like, Hey, Hey sailor. How about I fucking buy you a whole bunch of fucking drinks? And <laughs> so Edward, so Hawk gets all fucking trashed uh, cause he's trying to build up the, uh, he's trying to build up the fucking nerve to fucking get on stage and strip naked for fucking this bar full of screaming middle-aged women. And after, uh, after some playful innuendos from the strip club's, uh, host Ron Jeremy. Yeah. It was that time that that nineties era where Ron Jeremy was everywhere. And, um, you know, Ron Jeremy, he's a, if if you're not familiar, he's a, apparently he sexually assaulted and raped a whole bunch of people. Like a lot, like Bill Cosby numbers. Like, and, uh, he's supposed to have like his, I don't know, his trial got pushed out to like May, April or May of this year. But, um, <laughs> He's facing up to 330 years in prison. Mm, that's interesting. So, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I'll you know what? I will I'll try to when that when the Ron Jeremy trial uh, comes around, I'll be sure to uh bring it up if anything interesting is in the news. Um if anything about it in the news pops up, I'll bring it up in uh in a few months. So, Anyways, Ron Jeremy's the host at this fucking male strip club. And um, so Hawk gets on stage. First thing he does, he immediately fills a beer pitcher with vomit. (laughs) And then he has his whole strip dance thing. And then so Hawk fails to win the strip contest. He doesn't get the $100. But uh, good news is he gets to fuck Shannon Tweed in her car out in the parking lot. So that's fun. Uh, Yeah, you know, that's... It's a funny time we live in. You watch scenes like that, and it's amusing. And then you think about how public perception has been guided to where it is now. And you're just like, you know, scenes like that just can't really be made anymore. You know, it's, it's funny. And, um, so that's what, that's what happened with, uh, with Hawk. And then, uh, we jump over to, uh, Trip and Trip's plan was he was going, he just figured he's just going to rob a small defenseless kiss fan of their tickets. That's how he's going to get his tickets. He's just going to jump some defenseless little kid for his kiss tickets. Um, so he tries to do this in a liquor store with people around. That's, you know, like, like I said, he's not very bright. But this backfires horribly for him. 
and trips gets his fucking wallet stolen and he ends up getting beat up by one of the kid he tries to rob's giant older brother named Chongo. <laughs> so and that's a whole fucking story. So basically he gets he gets his ass kicked, he gets his fucking wallet stolen and uh no tickets. A bunch of other stuff happened in between. But I'm not even going to fucking bring that up, but because I want to wrap this up soon. So, so then we jump to Lex, who um, he tries to sneak into the show, and he, he almost makes it in. He basically tries to sneak in through the back way where uh, the the crew is like loading in the band's equipment. So he basically tries to sneak in that way, but he ends up getting caught, and then they throw him over a fucking fence into a fucking alley filled with trash he gets he gets surrounded by a pack of angry wild dogs that was a thing back in the day by the way that was like a movie trope packs of wild vicious dogs roaming the streets that was, that used to be a thing uh there's this like 80s punk rock movie called suburbia and like in the opening scene there's some like scared lost confused teenage punk girl i don't even know if she's really a punk at all but she's she's basically in this phone booth and um oh my god am i getting my movies confused okay this is how i remember suburbia i could be wrong but she's basically she i think she has a baby and she's on the side of the road at night, in the middle of the night, uh, and she gets off the phone. And as soon as she walks outside, a pack of wild dogs fucking attack and kill her and the baby. <laughs> so that was a thing. So when a pack of wild dogs roll up on fucking Lex in this alley, I was like, I totally understand what's going on right now. Back in the day, there was just wild dogs. Okay, this is like, you know. And this is and the movie takes place in the seventies. So this is before Bob Barker was telling people to get their dogs spayed and neutered, their cats and dogs spayed and neutered. At the end of uh, Price is Right, so there's just wild animals running, roaming the streets. So he befriends. He ends up befriending all these fucking dogs because he finds a frisbee, and as soon as he finds the frisbee, the dogs stop growling at him and are like, "Huh." Frisbee? Are you going to throw that? He throws the Frisbee and the dogs run after him. And they're like, oh my God, you're now our new best friend. And then Lex ends up finding out that the character of Christine didn't steal his gynecologist mom's car. Instead, she was abducted and the car was stolen by two mechanic guys who have a nearby chop shop. Um, and before she's brutally raped, dismembered, and her body parts presumably fed to local stray dogs, and um, Lex's gynecologist mom's Volvo gets chopped up for scrap metal, Lex appears at the shop and sicks his new gang of vicious strays on the two creep mechanics and saves Christine. Saves the car, saves the girl. So he gets the girl, gets his mom's car. 
and the two fucking car thief potential rapist guys get uh, chewed up and eaten by a pack of wild dogs. So that's cool, right? Because nobody likes rape. So Jam, uh, Jam walks past uh, this anti-kiss rally that's like right where the, uh, it's like across the street from where the concerts take place. It's funny, all these things, the strip club, the fucking liquor store, this anti-kiss rally, the chop shop, the alley with the dogs, all this, all these things are basically across the street from each other. It's fucking convenient. You know, it's, it's convenient for the story. Um, so, so jam walks past this anti-kiss rally where, Oh no, fucking his mom, Lynn Shea is attending it. And she fucking spots him in the crowd fucking jumps off stage and grabs him and drags uh, jam to a nearby church. Of course it's nearby because everything's nearby. There's a church right there. That's uh, like they're having uh, their night services coming out. So all the people in the church are coming out. The priest is at the door telling everyone, you know, Hey, good night. <laughs> Thanks for coming to church. And um, as the church is emptying out, Fucking Lin Shay drags uh, Jam over to the priest and explains uh, to him that her son is a fucking Kiss fan that needs to confess his sins right now. And the priest is like, oh my God, a Kiss fan. Oh, please, please, I'll, I'll take the boy in right now. So um, Jam, Jam is left alone to go sit in a confessional booth and um, confess his sins to the priest. So Lin Shay goes out to um, continue protesting Kiss. <laughs> and now uh, Jam is in this empty church sitting in a confessional booth. And uh, the priest is sitting in his little fucking booth. And, uh, you know, uh, and I, and he's, he's, he has to confess his sins. And really the only sin that he has is that, uh, you know, he likes Kiss basically. And um, I, I relate to that scene. I I had to, um, I didn't go to Catholic school, but I went to um, a, a, a kind of Catholic school. So I had to go to public school and I had to go to this, like these Catholic school, like classes for my catechism, which is like, like you get baptized as a baby and then you have to like go to like school to, Catholic catechism school to like learn what it means to be a Catholic. And then you have your, your, your communion. So you go to your catechism school and then that prepares you to have your first communion and where you put on an outfit and you, um, it's a whole thing. (laughs) It's a whole thing at the church and your family attends and whatever. And you know, what uh, what's the other thing? Um, like non-Catholics confirmation. That's uh, I think that's like the equivalent of communion, the first communion. Anyways, so yeah, I remember sitting in fucking because you in catechism class you basically practice 
going to confession before you actually are have your first communion. And you, even, you don't even get to sit in the fucking confession box. You know, if you don't know what that is, it's like a tiny wooden room where you sit on a, in a chair and then like there's a little window on the wall that slides open. There's like a little dark screen and the priest is on the other side of it sitting in another little tiny room and you sit there and you confess your sins to the priest and then the priest will, um, he'll give you your penance. Your penance would be, typically you would be asked to pray on the rosary. Uh, He would tell you, you know, you need to do X number of Hail Marys and X number of Our Fathers and yada, yada, yada. But it's like, at that age, I, I didn't really have a concept of like what sinning really was. So, I don't know. I used to just make up sins because I felt like I had to say something. I couldn't go up there and be like, I haven't sinned because I'm awesome. I went and watched fucking UHF with Weird Al Yankovic and I'm fucking on top of the world. And so I, I have nothing to confess. So I would just make the shit up anyway. So there's a scene where jams sitting there and he's supposed to confess to the fucking priest. And the priest is like a pervert. He's like, he's like, have you, have you had any impure thoughts, my son, that you would like to tell me about? Perhaps you found some adult magazines in your father's bedroom. You know, shit like that. And you're just like, okay. Jam's supposed to sit there and confess to this priest, and then the priest is kind of a it's kind of a creep. Um but basically this the whole jam part uh segment of the movie is um when Jam got dragged into the church one of his little crushes from school, this girl named Beth. Are you starting to pick up on a pattern of these girls' names? If you're a Kiss fan, there's a song called Beth that Kiss did. And then there's a song called Christine. So, so of course, the girls in name are Beth and Christine. So anyways, this girl, Beth, who has the hots for jam and has always had a crush on him and stuff, but was too, like, you know, shy to tell him. Um, but he also kind of liked her too. So they were both just awkward around each other. You know, they never confessed their feelings to each other. So she basically, she's sitting with her family because she's supposed to move away to Ann Arbor, Michigan. So anyways, she's sitting at a diner that's near the concert hall. It's also near the church. It's near the alley with the dogs. It's near the liquor store. And (laughs) all these things, it's near the chop shop. This also, all these things are, on the exact same street. So um, she sees Jam getting pulled into the church. So she's like, man, this might be my last chance to say goodbye to him. So, because uh, she didn't have a chance at school because he got whisked away to boarding school. So she didn't really have a chance to say goodbye to him. So she's like, t- she tells her parents, they're sitting in a diner. And she's like, oh, I see my friend out there from school. I really, I want to say goodbye to him. And his and her parents are like the only, like not reactionary psychotic adults in the whole fucking movie. They actually seem like normal parents. They were like, the dad's like, I'm not gonna have you fucking. Or maybe it was the mom. The mom was like, I don't want you fucking going out on the street in fucking Detroit, 
in the middle of the fucking night to go say hello to your fucking dumb school friend. And she's like, it'll be fine. I'm just going to say goodbye to him real quick. I'll be right back. And they're like, all right, hurry up. That's the most realist moment in the entire, uh, in the entire movie. I was like, oh, wow. Her parents are actually really uh, reasonable. <laughs> so she runs out of the diner. She runs into the church and finds Jam uh, in the confessional booth. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? And she goes in the booth and she's basically like, look, um, I always had a crush on you. And I never thought I'd see you again. And like, I never thought I'd have a chance to kind of tell you how I feel. And now this is like, now I actually have this chance. So I've had a giant crush on you this whole time and yada, yada, yada. And he's like, Oh wow. He's like, well, I always had a crush on you too, but you know, I'm the shy one in the group and I just never told you. So, uh, the two of them end up just, uh, fucking in the confession booth. (laughs) So, uh, in the church, so there you go. That's there's your uh, big slice of uh, blasphemy, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, for one movie. Jam now filled with with uh, a newfound confidence goes outside after having unprotected premarital vaginal intercourse unshaved pubic hairs rubbing touching exchanges of bodily fluids um leaves the church and just like you know what i'm gonna go confront my mother so he goes over to the the area where the kiss anti-kiss rallies taking place and he marches up on stage and he's like you were a fucking shitty mother like i'm gonna turn 18 soon and you have no fucking control over me And, you know, I can't believe you would just send me off to boarding school and just be a fucking bitch to me instead of just being an adult and talking to me like a person. You know, you just beat me over the head with religion my whole life. And you wonder why I listen to fucking kiss and smoke weed and all this shit. And also, by the way, I just lost my virginity in a fucking confessional booth in a church. And the crowd gasps, like, oh, my God. And his mom's like, and his mom's actually impressed. Like, she it was kind of, a, it's a total standing up to the bully type of thing. So he stood up to his mother finally, and she was just like, wow, they grew up fast. Like, she basically had this moment of acceptance of, like, wow, my boy is not a child anymore. Like, he's coming into his own. And, and Lynn Shea hams it up so hard. Like, she's totally a, just an insufferable bitch the entire movie until she gets confronted. And then she's like, she has this moment of acceptance of like, wow, my son is becoming a man. And that's kind of, that's kind of neat. You know, it's so that's, that's that was cool to see. Cause you know, you know, if he told off his mom and was just like, I just got my dick wet in the fucking church and shit. And then she just like, had a fucking outburst after that. Like that, I don't know. That wouldn't be a good way to tie up the movie. One thing I did find, and I never noticed this until the last time I I watched this. Um, From the perspective of Jam's mother, the last thing Lynn Shea remembers is she left her son with a Catholic priest in an empty church 
to give his confession. Some time passes, and then her son appears full of piss and vinegar and says, I just lost my virginity in a confession booth. And I thought, now, she didn't see Beth run into the church. She's not aware that that girl even exists. So I was like, why doesn't the mom think that, like, from her perspective, she's probably thinking, did the my son just fuck the priest? Because that seems like the most logical thing that would take place. Not that I'm saying that this movie follows any kind of logic, but when your son goes into a church with a priest and then comes out and he's like, guess what? I just lost my virginity in a confession booth. And the last time you saw him was him going to confession with a Catholic priest. Like there's no follow up to that. She's, he's not like, did you fuck the priest or did he fuck you? And he's like, Oh no, 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 no. I fucked a girl in the confession booth. She's like, Oh, okay. I guess that's, that's less bad. There isn't that scene. You just—he's just like, guess what, everyone? I just lost my fucking virginity in a confession booth in a church. Now what? So I don't know. I thought that was kind of—I thought that was funny because <laughs> the scene itself is great because he's standing up to his overbearing mother. But that, just from her perspective, she must have thought like, oh, the priest must have fucked them. They grow up so fast. Anyways, so they all meet up after having their little mini adventure and um, they're all empty handed, no tickets and the show's about to happen and Jams basically proposes like, okay, how about the four of us beat the shit out of each other and then when we, we can go to the front door and then they'll have to let us in because we'll tell them that they got beaten up for their tickets and somehow the front door guys will take pity on them and just let them into the concert and believe their story. Because why wouldn't a, why would a person that's horribly beaten and bleeding from the face who's like, look, I had tickets, but somebody beat me up for my tickets. Like, why wouldn't you just believe them and let them in? And uh, I mean, I... And that's actually what happens. They, there's like this, they all just beat the shit out of each other in the middle of the street. And I respect that. Um, there was a, there was a band back in the like late eighties, early nineties, uh, called filth. They were a punk band. And, um, me and my friends in high school were a big fan of, of filth. Filth was the shit. And we had our own little band in high school and, uh, we would play like filth songs, you know, we would cover filth songs for fun because they were the shit. But even then in the nineties, like filth already broke up. Like the only thing that exists of them is their records. That's all we had. So fast forward, I don't know, 20, not even, yeah, maybe 15 years later. Um, I find out I'm living in San Francisco. I find out that filth is having 
a small, like, tiny reunion tour. I think they were doing, like, just a handful of shows. And one of them was in San Francisco. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to go. So it was, like, me. It was me, my lady. We, like, just started dating. And um, and a buddy of ours, I got this dude I was in a band with. And <laughs> we only had two tickets, right? We bought two tickets online. My buddy bought it on his credit card. So we went to, uh, was it? We went to the will call line and, but we wanted to get my lady in. So I was like, I sat him down. I'm like, look, I'm going to need you to go to the front door. And I'm going to need you to convincingly lie to the front door. When you go up there tell them your name and tell them that you have three tickets that you put on your credit card. They're going to tell you you only have two, but I need you to convince them that you did buy three and they somehow made a mistake and they have to let the three of us in. So I sat there like in the parking lot, like hyping them up. I'm like, you got to look them in the eye and believe the lie, like make them believe that they need to get all three of us in because you paid for it on your credit card. So we get to the front and he's like, oh, yeah, uh, my name is so-and-so. I had three tickets. I'm on the will call. And they're like, uh, we only have you down for two. And he's just like, like like a silent film actor, like puts his hands on his hips and is like shaking his head. And he's just like, oh, that's impossible. I know I bought three. It's all my credit card statement and yada, yada, yada. And he's like, oh, I think I have the receipt on, in in my, my, my phone. He's like, maybe if I can pull it up. I swore I bought three tickets. I mean, there's three of us here. Why would I bring, why would I show up with three people if I didn't buy three tickets? So, so basically the guys were like, there's a huge line. The place is sold out. It's fucking, there's people everywhere. There's all these drunk, old, sweaty punk rockers everywhere. And they're just like, you know what? Fuck it. You know what? The three of you come in, come in. It's fine. And we, we fucking, yeah, we've, the three of us got in. We only paid for two tickets. It's fucking great. So I totally respect trying to con people at some front door guys into getting into anywhere, really, if you can do it. If you can fucking talk your way in, I totally respect that. So the scene where they all beat the shit out of each other so that they can get sympathy from the door guys to get let into the Kiss concert, I'm like, yes, I, I've, I have... I've been there. I've been in that's that's not that specific situation, but I've been in similar situations. They get to the front door. The four of them are limping, bleeding from the nose, bleeding from the face, split eyebrows. They tell the front they tell the guys at the uh, front door, "Hey, our we got jumped for our fucking kiss tickets. You got to let us in, man. They we you know, the guys who stole our tickets are in there and they're like, "You expect us to believe that?" And he's like, look at us, man. We're all fucking beat to shit. Like, and then right at that moment, fucking Chongo, his little brother, and his fucking buddies are in the fucking venue. And they're about to walk into the main part of the concert hall. And Trip sees them and is like, those guys did it. And they fucking turn around. <laughs> and he's like, they bring over Chongo and all the guys, and he's like, those guys jumped us for our tickets. And they're like, no, we didn't. That's ridiculous. And he's like, no, 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 no. They fucking have my wallet with my Kiss Army ID in it. 
and 150 bucks in cash and, and fucking four tickets and security and the police show up at this time. They fucking check Chongo and his brother and his friends. And what do they find? They find fucking trips wallet. They find the money. They find his fucking kiss army ID. And they're like, you fucking jumped these poor boys for their fucking kiss tickets. You guys are fucking under arrest. You're fucking out of here. And we don't actually see them get arrested, but you see them get escorted from the building and they take their tickets and the fucking front door guy hands them the four tickets and boom, our fucking heroes make it to the kiss concert and they get inside and then they fucking go in and fucking kiss is there and kiss fucking performs Detroit rock city because that's the name of the fucking movie and their journey is complete They've managed to make it to see Kiss. How wonderful. The end. I don't know. I, I would have figured Chongo and his homies would have just waited until they came out of the concert and, and then actually beat the shit out of them. But that's not the point. The point is they made it to the fucking Kiss show. That's all that matters. So uh, that was Detroit Rock City. And um, that is the last movie uh, in this list of what I like to call feel-good movies, like movies that are just fun to watch. And, you know, there's not there's not high stakes in these things. It's just, just good, clean, fun movies that have a pretty good level of rewatchability, I will say. Real quick, when I was compiling all this information for this episode, I noticed a pattern. And here's the pattern. Ready? Uh, I will leave you with this. Uh, the character of Lex was actually in two Smashing Pumpkin music videos. And the score to the movie Linda, Linda, Linda was written by James Eha, who was in Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, my God. Also, Weird Al covered the song Bullet with Butterfly Wings in his polka medley in the song Alternative Polka off of his Bad Hair Day album. And that song, of course, was performed by the Smashing Pumpkins. There you go. All the songs, uh, well, all the movies, rather, tied up together in a nice little bow for you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, it's a new year, and... Uh, I promise to make it a good one for you. This is a Skeleton Factory podcast, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. I am Adam. I will catch you guys next time. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye.